Welcome back to another episode of Forwards Backwards Podcast, coming to you not from the corner of Glenway and Monroe, and not from the Gimme Some Truth Studios. This week we talk non-medical virology, golf, and walking the dog with special guest, Forward Madison head coach, Daryl Shore. As always, I'm joined by the Doc Gooden to my Gary Carter, Dan Fallon. <coughs> Dan, did you celebrate your viral tweet this weekend by hosting a quarantine cocaine circus? <laughs> um, lot of a uh, lot of upset former bulls having to explain things to their families last <laughs> night, huh? Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I, I haven't had a chance to organize a cocaine circus since the since the quarantine has happened. <laughs> I definitely, I wasn't all that uh, excited about watching the, the Jordan documentary, but hearing about that today um, made me, makes me want to tune in. Although you, you did mention my viral tweet, which I, I do appreciate, Keith. It was a very special moment for me. But I woke up this morning to um, the doorbell ringing at 6.30 in the morning. And uh, someone had, I, this is what I assume, Someone from the, uh, you know, reopen the government or reopen businesses, protesters came and ripped down our charter internet line and it was hanging across the street. So I was the victim of, uh, of sabotage. (laughs) You're you're going deep state conspiracy theory on this one, huh? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. None of that's, none of that's true. I just think it fell down in the wind, but it wasn't blocking (laughs) our street. Uh, Remind, for people that don't follow you on Twitter, what is your handle on the Twitter machine? Uh, at, D, at DF Fallon 12. Yep. DF Fallon. And uh, what, it, what is the, somehow you, by the way, DF Fallon 12 and you criticize, what is our handle for the podcast? At forwards back Wat 2. I, I don't know how that's any worse than DF Fallon 12, but that's, <laughs> that's just me. 12 is my lucky number and my entire name is there. So that's at least a start. I don't know. Uh, we're still continuing. We've added followers, by the way. We're still considering our, our, our 400 follower takeaway. Just remember, if you're our 400 follower, we will come to your house and take something from you, as long as it's been disinfected and, and Corona cleaned. Uh, we're joined, uh, as always, uh, you know, when, when we can get him on his grandma's couch uh, in his living room. Uh, by Cowboy Neil at the Wheel Havati. Neil, as a Chicago boy, you must have sold a lot of pairs of Jordans on your Poshmark page. In recent days, yeah, we've, we've, we've done all right in sales, but uh, I hold a, price, a firm price point, so uh, they got to bid a little higher if they want to get them off my hands. No quarantine deals in his Poshmark page. Nope. Stimulus checks are in. I know people have money. <laughs> it's all going to Tigers. And, and if you want to spend your, your stimulus check, Neil, on your Poshmark page, it is? Mustache Thrift. You can check me out on Instagram, Poshmark. Changing my name on eBay because I made one sale after a seven-year hiatus. So I'm back in the game on multiple <laughs> platforms. Cross-content cross king. That is correct. That's correct, Keith. So, so Daryl, did you watch the uh, the the Michael Jordan documentary last night, Coach Shore? I, I did, and I'm probably the only one on this podcast that has the distinction of saying that I was there for Michael Jordan's first hit as a professional baseball player in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, but uh, I did watch. Uh, like was Dan it his Fallon, first and only uh, hit? 
Didn't he have just one? I think he had two hits. Uh, I was there <laughs> at the first. Um, it was a it was a, a slow roller to the shortstop that he beat out um, <laughs> at first base. So, uh, in my days of, of college, uh, I worked at a barbecue restaurant, and I used to serve the hitting coach for the Birmingham Barons, and he got me tickets to a game, and it happened to be Jordan's first hit. So, uh, but I probably like uh, Mr. Fallon. Uh, had a hard time watching it because I'm a diehard Knicks fan and I'm still not getting over the 91 series when the Bulls beat the Knicks. Uh, Xavier McDaniel was playing for the Knicks. He played for my father. Um, so it was Xavier McDaniel versus Cliff Levingston. Um, and my dad was actually at game six of that series. So uh, it, it was well done. Um, I had had no idea uh, about the Cowboys, um, uh, the Bulls, uh, Cowboys, but in your reference to Doc Gooden and <laughs> Gary Carter, I started scratching my head here a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was well done. And uh, we asked the players actually um, who the greatest of all time is. And Mr. Banks said it was Jordan. Uh, Mr. Tobin went with uh, Bill Russell. Ooh, M- Mr. Tobin showing some respect for history. Russell yeah, had, I, I don't, I don't think Mr. Tobin ever saw Bill Russell play. Uh, I mean, Tobin's old, but he's not that old, is he? Uh, I don't know. Neil, is he that old? We're pretty old. Yeah. Neil, did you did you watch uh, did you watch Jordan growing up? How old were you for the prime of those those Bulls teams? Uh, The ninety through ninety eight. I was pretty young, but I watched every single finals, and we'd go out and drive around in my grandpa's car and honk the horn after every finals win. Um, so I remember that pretty distinctly. And then after every finals championship, we'd go to one of the holiday ends and get all the merchandise. Um, still have a few of the t-shirts. I highly regret not knowing where the rest of it is. Uh, have, are you, are those, uh, are those t-shirts for sale on your Poshmark page, Neil? Yeah, but they're at unreach- unreachable prices. <laughs> Neil, speaking speaking of your Poshmark, I got an item for you that I found in my in-laws' house now that this show is out. It's a box of Wheaties with Michael Jordan on the cover. Oh. Um, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I looked it up to see how much it was worth. The box is unopened, but the Wheaties are still in there. Uh, but the, the going rate is only $10. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta get an autograph on it. Uh, it's a box of weeds delivered right now costs ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that seems I, insane. <laughs> I mean, I guess if it were a box of toilet paper, maybe you could fetch be- better pr- prices. With Jordan, uh, on the on bundle the it up now, uh, Coach, sure, you you hadn't yet arrived in Chicago when when Jordan was still playing there, were you or? Uh, um, I had not actually. I was um, in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and playing in college. I was finishing up my college career, and then my the start of my semi pro slash pro career. And the reference to um, my, one of my best trivia questions that I have is, "Who is the best athlete that Terry Francona has ever managed?" Um, is is a question, and everybody always names a baseball player, and I laugh. <laughs> I would venture to say that if you ask Terry Francona who the best overall athlete is that he ever managed, Michael Jordan would be uh, in that. You you would think that would be his answer, but I don't know. I don't know Terry Francona, but we actually, I was playing for the Birmingham Grasshoppers in the USISL in that 97 series. Um, 
But before that, actually, I'm sorry, not in 97, when Jordan was playing baseball, I was playing for the Birmingham Grasshoppers, and we used the same bus company um, that the Barons used. And the old saying was that Jordan bought the bus for the bus company. It's actually not true. Jordan put the down payment down for the bus. <laughs> the bus company bought the bus. Uh, but it was the Michael Jordan bus. It had a couch in the back of the bus, um, a round couch with a card table. Uh, so when we would travel to our games with the Grasshoppers, uh, we had a, a kid, Kadani McAlpine, who's now the head women's coach at USC. Um, we used to tell him to sit up towards the front and act like he was MJ. Uh, and people <laughs> would drive by the bus and honk at us all the time. And he would wave outside the bus. It was pretty funny. Um, but uh, I was not in Chicago. And um, I'm proud to say that I'm still a Nick fan, even though we are not good. Uh, so I, I, I do think Jordan is the best that we've ever seen, um, but I, I'm not a Jordan fan. Fair enough. Fair enough. Dan, uh, Dan, have you gotten over, you know, your, your childhood traumas and inflicted upon you by uh, Michael Jordan? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was never, I, I would be lying if I said I was ever a huge NBA fan. I mean, I liked it back in the day, I think just to watch players. I mean, I was a Knicks fan, but I mean, I think there was maybe that kind of that run, in like the early nineties where I was into it and like, yeah, I remember losing a couple of those series. The Pacers series is actually the one that kind of always sticks out in my head. And then that the loss in the finals to the Rockets when I think I might've been a senior in high school, but um, I've never been a Jordan fan. His hall of fame introduction or induction speech made me less of a Jordan fan. I'm sure if I watched this, I'd become less of a Jordan fan. Listen, the guy's like probably the most um, intense, uh, athlete one of the best finishers ever in the game um i just i think the guy's trash <laughs> <laughs> this cracks me up because you're Nothing never gonna be like yeah you, you know dance everybody who meets you at games thinks you you know you're, you're this like nice easygoing guy you might be the most intense competitor on on the soccer pitch <laughs> at your age of of anybody well and i'll just this. And since I've already thrown out one conspiracy, you really think his dad was just randomly murdered by two guys on the side of the road? Oh boy! Now we're now we're digging deep. But that's actually <laughs> you're really getting after. What if I told you that Jordan was a, a Liverpool fan? Is he? No, I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> Le- LeBron is though, and LeBron's the goat. <laughs> LeBron is a part owner. So this actually brings something up, though. I think one of the things that was most known about about Jordan was that he was a just such an intense competitor. Neil and Daryl, since uh, Dan and I aren't allowed to talk about our own pro- playing careers, uh, <laughs> either coaching or playing, who, who were the most intense competitors that you guys ever ever worked against or played against or coached against in your careers? Intense? Yep. In terms I mean, of I like think- the guys that just would not lose, whatever they, you know, they just refused – everything they could do to, to refuse to lose. Yeah. I think they're, I think you see some things in the documentary into Jordan where I'd say the, the quality he had a lot was that he was ruthless. Um, and you can, you can align that with intensity. Um, I think you see a lot more into to players lives because of social media now. So we kind of didn't see that side of Jordan back then. And a lot of the, the players that were in the, the eighties and the nineties and the Pistons teams that were known for being mean and scrappy. We didn't know their lives. And now we know what kind of what guys are like. Um, but as far as 
when, when playing soccer, um, man, it's a tough one. I remember, uh, had some great battles with Kevin Harms in the NASL. He played, uh, for Toronto FC for a little bit. He was a guy that I took a few punches off the face from, um, cause he wanted to do anything he had to win and didn't like it when we were playing, but I kind of respected it. Um, Julius James was kind of like that. He would do anything on the field to, 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 to get a win. Um, wasn't always the prettiest, but um, he was another player like that. Um, they're not always the guys you like being teammates with, uh, but you like that they're on your team, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think, I think uh, Tobin was kind of like that for a while when we had a, a year or two as teammates. He'd walk out of a lot of training sessions hating each other but then happy that they're on your team on Saturdays. Um, so that's, that's probably, that's probably three of them. Um, I don't know. What about you, D? Yeah, I will say this about Tobin. Um, and I've only known him now for a little over a year and a half, but um, when it comes to soccer tennis, I want that guy on my team. <laughs> I'll give him credit. He, he does not lose. And, and, I don't know if it's because he makes up his rules as he goes along, as some of our other players might um, might say, but um, I, I'll give him that. I, I'm going to give you, um, as far as the competitiveness and, and, and the, the fight and the grit um, and then the, the, the attitude of I'm not going to lose this game, um, obviously I, I've coached a lot of great teams or been a part of a lot of great teams. Um, you know, the, the guys are there – uh, Kyle Beckerman is one that he you talk about every day in training and 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 every day in in uh, games and and whatnot. Uh, Kyle was was at, he's probably up there in my list. But the three guys that I think are, are probably the most um, one is and it wasn't from ability, but it was just from when you talk about you. Whenever we would pick teams, I'd pick this guy on my team because I knew. He was going to fight, he was going to dig, and he was going to battle every time. It was C.J. Brown, um, a defender for the fire. Uh, but when it came to if we had to have a competition of I'm not going to lose at anything, whether that was cards, uh, flipping a water bottle to see if it would land on its top side, uh, <laughs> soccer, whatever, it was Chris Armis. Uh, Chris, uh, I'm, uh, I saw something today on the MLS website where they're showing the Mount Rushmore's of, of each team, and they put Chris on there and, and CJ actually. But Chris is 100%, um, in my opinion, the best defensive midfielder um, that we've probably had in in our time of soccer, uh, and was unfortunately not able to play in the 2000 Olympics because of a knee injury, the 2002 Olympics because of a knee in, or 2002 world cup because of a knee injury. And then in 06, he actually fought really hard to get back and was the last guy cut from the world cup team in 06. They took John O'Brien instead. And, and I know for a fact that after the world cup was over, Bruce called Chris and apologized, uh, because, he felt like uh, Chris, if they had had him in the 06 World Cup, it would have helped. So, Chris, um, and then to go on Neil's, everybody hates that player, but <laughs> you would want him on your team. Um, the end of uh, 07 and um, 08 with the fire, uh, Cuauhtémoc Blanco um, 
I'm telling you, this guy, man, he he would not lose at anything. And, and to give you a quick funny story about Blanco, uh, we used to, after games on the road, uh, a bunch of us would get together, um, you know, and play poker um, in the hotel. Uh, instead of a lot of guys would go out, a lot of guys would do whatever. And we had a group of guys that would play poker uh, and Tamo would come and play with us. And and the first few times he played, he would say, I don't know how to play. You know, how do you play and all this stuff. And his bodyguard would, would have to explain it to us because his English wasn't great. By the third or fourth time we were playing, Blanco took everyone's money. Um, <laughs> part of it was because he had so much money that he just went all in every time and could just rebuy in. Uh, but the other part was he understood the game. Uh, he, he got to understand the game pretty quickly. And, and um, he he was one that um, that guy in training and in games and everything, he was such a fierce competitor that uh, he's a guy that was a, another one. So those would be probably my three guys that uh, would put on my list. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, Jordan was, again, he was great, but, I also got a chance to see Larry Bird play uh, in college. Uh, and you talk about the biggest trash talker ever to play the game. Um, <laughs> it was Larry Bird. Michael Jordan's probably up there. But Bird was, um, you know, he, he's – he told Xavier McDaniel, and it's, it's yes. documented in a yeah, video. This is he, one of my yes. favorite stories. This is one of my favorite stories. Um, yeah. That he's the baddest white boy ever to play the game. And I don't mean that to offend anybody, but Xavier <laughs> would tell you that he was right. Um, but – yeah, I mean, watching Bird play was unbelievable. But then I also remember sitting uh, on a bench at a Wichita State game once. I was a kid, 13 years old, and uh, a player by the name of Terry Atwater was on the bench. Um, he was a walk-on, and uh, we were sitting on the end of the bench, and we were playing in a game, and we were losing. And I was, like, all nervous and everything. And Terry turned to me, and he goes, hey, he goes, don't worry, Antoine's not going to let us lose this game. And it was Antoine Carr uh, who played for Wichita State, uh, had a great career uh, in the NBA as well. So as a kid, Antoine was a guy that I always thought of as that guy was never going to let you uh, lose. But, um, yeah, on the soccer field, it's Kyle, it's Chris, it's CJ and, and, and Tamo for sure. But in soccer tennis, it's definitely uh, – <laughs> So, Daryl, you, you kind of touched on a couple of – topics that we talked to Peter Will about last week, uh, Chris Armas being one of them that Bob Bradley kind of made it very clear early on that Chris was the player. He wanted to kind of build a lot of what Chicago fire were going to be around. And my question is slightly unrelated, but um, kind of topical. And then a little bit of your past at some point you were in charge of the youth setup with Chicago as well. Right. And kind of developing the Academy there. And I'm um, just curious your thoughts on us soccer's announcement this week about uh, getting rid of the development academy. Uh, I know there's a lot of kind of different takes on it that they need the money to pay off the the lawsuit or and this or that. But there was also kind of this rumbling that this would have been coming for a long time, and they kind of used this as an opportunity to kind of make a decision they were going to make anyway. But if you want to weigh in on that, but also just maybe weigh in a little bit more broadly on what you think, you know, what we need to do in this country to have a more kind of coherent youth setup. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's interesting. This has been a long time coming uh, with the DA, um, and it's it's been known. Uh, there's a lot of people that knew that this one day was going to eventually come to it, and and 
I think I read an article the other day, Freddie Juarez, who I worked with at RSL, who was a big proponent of the RSL Academy, uh, basically came out and said that the MLS teams have essentially outgrown uh, the, the DA. Um, and, and it's to a, to a, to a degree, he's right. Um, it, it is that they've outgrown it from the standpoint of like in Europe and, and, and like in foreign countries, what happens is you have all these feeder clubs or you have all these top clubs, but by the time their players get to be 13, 14 years old, the top clubs come in and they swoop them up and they put them into the Barcelonas or they put them into the Liverpools and, and they have these academies. Uh, I think there was actually something, a study done though of uh, in the premier league of the top academies. And it's not the clubs mm-hmm. that you think it's not the Liverpools. It's not the, the man use and, and, and the man cities. It's the smaller clubs that create better academies. But then what happens is the teams with all the money, come in and they buy the players and, or they compensate the players. My personal opinion, what needs to happen is um, this is the right move uh, as far as um, the MLS starting, uh, having their own academies and starting their own leagues. Uh, But I still think there needs to be academies. Um, So the clubs like, like Neil's uh, Chicago soccer's uh, the the Anza force, uh, the, the surf, they need to have their clubs too. But now what needs to happen is in America, uh, only in America, with the land being great, is we need to have compensation. And, and we need to have, um, you know, uh, when players, uh, you know, go from a soccer's and when they're 14 or 15 years old, they then move over to the fire. And now the fire, when the kid turns 18, signs them, the fire need to turn around and they need to compensate the soccers. Uh, and, and I'm not saying it needs to be an exorbitant amount of money, but there needs to now start being this, uh, this monetary value of these players. And, and I know with our child labor laws and everything, it's probably never going to happen. But this needs to be something where now these club teams that are working so hard to develop these kids and, and make them better, um, now they have something to feel good about when they lose their kids at the ages of 15 or 14, because now they've developed them from the age of eight all the way up until they're 14. But now when they go and they leave and they go to a different club, uh, then I think the MLS club, if they sign him to a contract or if he goes to a team uh, overseas, that club should now have to compensate, um, you know, the the club that brought this player up. And the case in point I'll bring to you is Liverpool um, with Brooks Lennon. Uh, the RSL Academy had Brooks Lennon, and Brooks goes, um, and the RSL, we, we made Brooks a, a bona fide offer uh, to sign as a homegrown. He turned it down. He went to Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool got him for free. Um, they didn't pay anything for him. And so he goes to Liverpool, and now two years later, RSL ends up paying to get him on loan to come back and play for RSL. And then they paid Liverpool again uh, because they bought him from Liverpool. That, that to me, uh, is not good business, and it's not the right way to do things. So um, I think there's got to be a way of the clubs that are not MLS-affiliated. Um, I think they've got to figure out a way to get – uh, benefited the benefit from these teams that are taking their players. Um, but I also think, you know, w- when Neil was playing and when, you know, I was playing, there wasn't a DA. 
Um, and so now there was just top clubs and the top players, you know, were scouted and then they ended up signing either with colleges or with pro teams or, or whatnot. So um, uh, I don't have a problem with, with MLS starting their own. Uh, there's talk about the USL doing the same. I know there are a, a number of USL teams uh, that have their own academies now. Uh, I can tell you as of now, Forward Madison is still going to stay uh, club neutral. Uh, we're, we're not going to start an academy within the next year, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, so I, I think what's important is that um, there's got to be a way to figure it out for these clubs to survive. But at the same time, I would say this. The clubs that were the DA clubs that weren't MLS affiliated, uh, they didn't get to be those clubs by not doing all right on the monetary side of things too with <laughs> kids uh, exorbitant amounts of money to play soccer for them. So um, I think there's a, there's a way to make this work, but for me, it's gotta be with, um, you know, the, the uh, and I'm not, thinking of the, the, the right terminology here, but it's where something where you're like developmental for yeah. developmental see. Right. Yeah. So like Michael Bradley. I mean when Michael, you know, signed uh with the Metro Stars and whatever, uh with MLS, MLS should have paid the soccer's a fee. Um and, and uh that's just my personal opinion of how it should work. Uh but at the same time, uh I don't have a problem with um some of the the things that are going on with U.S. soccer moving away from it and and the MLS taking it over. I, I think moving away from the development academy, one of the the things about things like the development academy, it puts all the emphasis on competition. And I think one of the places where U.S. soccer can get a lot better is in the level of of training. And uh, you know, I think have you seen a development in in youth coaches? over the last, you know, 20, 25 years and in, in their levels and, and how they're being developed? Or do you still think that our youth coaching is not up, up to snuff? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I, first of all, youth coaching has definitely gotten a lot better. Um, that's for sure. Because when I was playing, it was dad's coaching and it's still there's dad's coaching. But what was going on was dads that knew nothing about the game were just going out there and coaching their kids. And so now – um, it's gotten to the point now where at least if dads are coaching now, they played college soccer or they played club soccer growing up. So they have a little bit of a better knowledge of it. Uh, you know, U.S. soccer is trying to do a better job with their coaching education. Um, you know, the old uh, the old way of the coaching education was, um, you know, come here for five days, pay a lot of money and you get a license and you're good to go. Um you know, now at least they're trying to uh, make it a longer process to get your license and, and really are doing a better job of, of weeding out the ones that probably shouldn't be coaching at the higher levels. Um, you know, again, it goes back to coaching, youth coaching is there's a difference between rec and a difference between competitive. Then there's a difference between competitive and then you know, there's rec, there's competitive, and then there's probably what you would call um, ultra competitive. You know, the 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 one percent of players that are gonna make it. Um, you know, the the Christian Pulisic's, the the Landon Donovans, the Neil Halabides. You know, um, the the guys <laughs> that don't want to play college soccer, 
Um, you know, some of them have to still go. And listen, they're still late bloomers, so there's nothing wrong with that. But um, the coaching has gotten better, but it can still get better. Uh, you know, back in the old days, it was, hey, this guy's got an accent. Let's make him the soccer coach. <laughs> well, that's that's one of our running jokes about the uh, the old English guys that I grew up playing for. You know, four four two, get it wide and hit it into the middle of the big guy playing center forward. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we've come a long way. We still need to get, we still need to be better. I mean, we're, we're, uh, listen, I mean, again, I grew up a a kid of a son of a basketball coach, you know, soccer, it's the only sport in the world where you need a license to coach. Um, So I don't know, you know, and this is coming from a guy who now has the the U S pro license and, and I think it's great, but if you would have uh, told basketball coaches that they need licenses to coach, I mean, would they all be coaching? Uh, so it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't, you know, you'd have to go back and see the history of why you need a license to coach, but um, yeah, coaching is getting better, but coaching can still be a lot better. What, what, Neil, what you just went through this, Neil, you just went through this process. What do you, you know, you just got your, which license remind me. Okay. B. And uh, I mean, how do you think it's changed you as a coach as you've kind of worked through that process? I think like Daryl said, it's definitely a vetting process. I think they definitely can, can weed some people out, but I think we're in such a massive country compared to other countries in the world where you're not going to have consistency throughout your country because there's not, you just can't get everyone to have licenses. Um, They've started doing like grassroots doing F, D, all the way, all the letters. Like there's so many, um, they all cost money. Um, but there's no way that you, in the time period that you can just get everyone a license. Um, I think they're definitely covering great things. Um, there's a wide window of coaches that are there from, from U12 to, to pro. So obviously everything isn't applicable to everyone at all times, but they're definitely trying. I think, how much I've seen it change, um, the, the course info from talking to, to other people, from talking to Daryl, from talking to Jim, the course has changed a ton over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so they're growing, they're trying to make it harder. It was definitely not an easy process. Um, Daryl can attest to that as well. I'm sure they push you. Um, so there's people that don't, um, get by and they shouldn't. So I hope that continues. But um, at some point, I hope it continues at a rate where it doesn't cost as much money, where it welcomes in coaches that, that deserve it and are doing good things for not just DA clubs. But there's a lot of good coaches out there that aren't DA coaches or pro coaches or travel team coaches that have immense knowledge. And we need to do a better job of getting those people in front of players to develop. For you, for you, Coach Shore, what was the the number one influence on on your development as a as a soccer coach? What was what really moved you forward? Was it training with uh, a particular coach that you know you learned a lot from? I mean, you had the experience of working with Bob Bradley, who many would say is probably the best coach of his generation. Uh, was it you know conversations? Was it a trip you took somewhere, or what what was it that that you think? had the most influence on you as a coach? It's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I always tell everybody the reason I'm a coach is because of my dad. Um, I always thought I was going to be a basketball coach, uh, growing up, um, as a kid, um, you know, my dad was a basketball coach and I always thought I was going to play basketball. Uh, and then 
uh, go to college, uh, graduate from college, and then go sit on my dad's bench and and learn the game through him. And, and you know, as a as a really little kid, we used to go to West Point, and I would my dad would take me, and I'm talking about really little, but we'd go see Bob Knight and and Coach K. We're coaching at Army, and and we would go to those games. And um, so I always knew. Um, growing up that I was going to be a coach. Uh, and again, I always thought it was gonna be basketball. Um, a couple of things, my, my uncle, um, I have two cousins from my mom's sister's husband is from Argentina. Uh, and so they're really the ones that got me into playing soccer. Uh, my brother and I uh, played a lot of, a lot of soccer, um, with them. Um, and so I got turned on to the sport really through, my uncle and my cousins, uh, playing that. Um, and then as I grew up, um, you know, going to college, my, my college coach, Preston Goldfarb, uh, had a, had a big influence on me. Um, again, I knew I was going to coach. And by that time being in college, I had kind of figured out that, um, I probably wasn't coaching basketball. Uh, my dad had, um, at the time when I first went, he was coaching a professional team in Germany uh, he had come back. He was coaching. Uh, he was kind of towards um, not the end of his career, but he had not fallen on hard times, but he was having a hard time uh, getting back into the college game. So I remember when I graduated college, uh, my I called my mom and I was distraught because I really had no idea what I wanted to do uh, other than play soccer. I knew I wanted to play soccer, but at the same time, I knew there really wasn't a career in soccer. Uh, playing. So she had said to me, uh, why don't you write a letter uh, to Coach Knight? And I kind of looked at her and I said, huh, what? She goes, yeah, write a letter to Coach Knight. He always liked your father. Explain your predicament. Maybe if you write a letter to him, you can go to graduate school at Indiana and be a graduate assistant. And I thought about it and I wrote the letter uh, and I never sent it. Uh, never sent the letter. I wish I still had the letter. I have no idea what I did with it because uh, that would have gone down in the history books. But what I ended up doing was I, I, I was an assistant coach at my alma mater while I was playing semi-professional. And then I went to New Orleans uh, to play as a player assistant coach for Mike Jeffries. Uh, and Mike is probably um, the guy that really got me into soccer 100% committed uh, not just as a player, but as a coach. Uh, and it was really Mike who went to Bob uh, and got me hired uh, on his staff. And, and so um, in in 1998, uh, Mike was the assistant coach with the Chicago Fire. But what people don't know is he was actually the head coach of the New Orleans Storm, and I was his assistant. And he called me one day. I was uh, driving to practice, and he's like, hey, I'm going to be a little bit late to practice. Can you get it started? And I thought that was like really strange because Mike was never late to anything. And so I was like, yeah, no problem. So we were training in New Orleans uh, across the lake. And it's a, the, you know, uh, get from New Orleans to Mandeville, you have to cross a 26 mile bridge. Um, and it's uh, pretty, pretty lonely on that bridge because there's only water on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I'm running training and he's like a good 40 minutes late. And so he shows up and I'm like standing there running a session and he comes walking out and he looks at me and he goes, Hey, uh, you need to go back to the office. I was like, yeah, I'll go back after practice. He goes, no, you need to go now. I go, what do you mean? I need to go now. He goes, I just quit. And I just like 
dropped everything. And I'm like, you did what? He goes, well, I just got hired by the Chicago Fire. I'm going to be an assistant. You're now the new head coach of this team. And I was like, whoa. So I went back, uh, and, and here's where the story gets funny, because hopefully um, – well, I don't think we've announced who our uh, the English team we're supposed to be playing. Um, <laughs> inside information, but the owner of the English team that we're supposed to be playing this summer was actually the owner of the New Orleans Storm at the time. So um, I went back. I met with him. Um, he named me the head coach. Uh, we had a good year. He fired me at the end of the year. Uh, I then went on <laughs> to be the head coach of the Lehigh Valley Steam. Uh, and that was the first time I really, uh, had ever met Bob, uh, cause we were affiliated with them. And then in 2000, um, you know, Mike called me and says, Hey, he goes, I got good news and I've got bad news. I said, what is it? He goes, well, we're looking for a full-time goalkeeper coach. I said, okay, that's good news. He goes, and you're a finalist. And I was like, how can I be a finalist if I never knew about it? So, well, it's between you and Dan, you'll like this name. It's between you and Hubert Berkemeyer. And I went, yeah, I got no chance at this job, do I, Mike? <laughs> well, he goes, you might have a chance. I go, how am I going to have a chance over Hubert Berkemeyer, a New York Cosmos legend? And he says, well, the job's only paying $10,000. <laughs> I got the job. Uh, but So I went and worked for Bob. Uh, and then after the first year, obviously, we, we, we went to the MLS Cup. We won the Open Cup. Uh, then that year, uh, we went on a trip to Barcelona. And uh, Mike didn't go with us because Mike was in the running for a couple jobs. And at dinner, Bob announced that Mike was getting uh, the job at Dallas. Uh, he actually said Mike's either going to get the Dallas job or the Colorado job. He has to choose. He goes, but I want you guys to know that I'm keeping the staff in place. And Mike's moving on, but everybody else is staying. Uh, and I thought that was interesting at the time because Mike really was the guy that brought me to Chicago. I thought I was going to have an opportunity to go uh, with Mike and, and it didn't happen. Um, Bob kept me around. So when you ask who's my biggest influence as a coach, it, it is Bob um, because he, what Bob would do uh, as a coach is he would ask you a question and then when you would answer the question, whether you answered it right or wrong, he would then come back at you with another question to make you start really thinking about what you just said. And even now sometimes, but, but early in my coaching career, I was really quick to answer without thinking. Um, and sometimes I would just say things that I probably shouldn't have said. Uh, and so Bob was the one that really taught me to really think before you answer a question. And if you ever watch Bob Bradley interviews, um, really more later than now, because now I think he actually uh, isn't as reserved as he used to be. Uh, but the Bob Bradley that I knew, whenever you would ask him a question, there was always a two to three second pause. And that was because Bob was, uh, you know, thinking about how he was going to answer the question before he did. So, um, again, I had the opportunity to work for Bob, Juan Carlos Osorio, Dave Sarakin, Dennis Hamlet. Um, so four guys that I thought, excuse me, did a great job as head coaches in, in MLS and obviously with national teams. And then Mike uh, also, I, I still think to this day, I tell people that Mike probably has, if not the best, one of the top two to three soccer brains that I've ever been around. So Mike Jeffries and Bob Bradley are my soccer uh, answers as far as uh, who helped mold me. Uh, 
However, Juan Carlos, Dave, and Dennis had a big uh, influence as well. Uh, but again, I go back to my father. Uh, he's the reason I'm a coach, and, and he's the reason I always knew I was going to be a coach. So Bob Bradley used the Socratic method, huh? He was a Socratic soccer coach. Bob was, <laughs> I'm telling you, you, you talk about, um, and Neil knows Bob from, from his young days of playing because Neil and Michael played together. But um, Bob, Bob's probably the smartest person I know. Like if, if we were on, if we were on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and you had to phone a friend, <laughs> I, think, I think mine would be Bob. Uh, I really do. Um, because not just, not just soccer. I mean, Bob's a, a bright, bright, I mean, he's a Princeton grad, uh, you know, and, and you talk about a smart, smart person. But the other thing people don't realize about Bob is he, he's very funny. Uh, he, he's he's got um, you have to be in his his inner circle. Uh, you have to know him. Uh, but he he's a, a funny guy and he's a smart guy and, and really overall a, a really great person. And I'd say that that interviewing style is rubbed off on his son, too, who you can has that same sort of uh, pause after the question's been asked, think about what you're going to say and then answer the question. The uh, apple does not fall far from the <laughs> So, uh, Daryl, I was just going to ask, you know, kind of during this, um, I mean, we're, you know, we say this a million times, we're during this in completely unprecedented time. Um, who have you been leaning on for advice or who, you know, who's kind of your regular group that you're con- in contact with about managing players through this, managing a club through this. And, um, Other than Blackjack, uh, Neil, the dog. I'm not saying this because he's on the call, but Neil <laughs> and, and Jim, uh, you know, Jim, Jim and Neil and myself and, and um, you know, the three of us uh, kind of are, are helping us uh, through it. Um, I would say that they're, they're both doing a, a tremendous job of, of, of sticking through this and, and helping us get through this. Um Again, Mike Jeffries, uh, Mike and I probably speak uh, once a week, um, just on a daily basis about different things. I, I've had calls with a bunch of different ones. Uh, spoke with uh, Timmy Howard uh, a couple times. Uh, Timmy and I are, are, I wouldn't say very close, but we're, we're, um, we know each other well. Tim Mulqueen, who's uh, the coach in Memphis, I've had some conversations with him. Um, it's just a few different. I mean, Eddie Rock, who, who is our kind of liaison, with the fire. Uh, we probably speak, uh, once a week, if not once every other week, just to kind of get a gauge as to what they're doing, uh, as to what we're doing early on in the stage. I, I had a conversation with Rafa, um, you know, wiki the, the coach of the fire. Um, yeah, it's re- it's really not just one guy. I mean, uh, Eric Winalda and I have talked a couple times. Um, and then Jesse Marsh and I have texted back and forth through uh, WhatsApp um, you know, so those guys, uh, Mike Sorber, who's Bob's assistant at LAFC. Uh, so just really, really what you're trying to do is kind of get a gauge of what everybody else is doing, just to kind of see if we're doing the right things um, or if, if we're on the same page as, as most of the other guys. And so um, I think we are. I mean, we're doing a few things that maybe some other teams aren't doing. And some teams are doing stuff that we're not doing. Um, I'd say within the league, uh, the one guy that I've talked to probably more than anyone else is John uh, Miglianzi from uh, South Georgia. Um, John and I have kind of uh, gotten a decent relationship and uh, we share some things with each other, um, you know, outside of soccer as well. So, uh, but yeah, for the most part, uh, it's really between myself, Neil, 
and Jim, just uh, really kind of making sure that we're staying on top of our guys and, and making sure that we're going to be ready to go once they let us get back on the field. So we have lots more of serious questions, but uh, we're getting into 45 minutes, so we should probably start moving to the non-serious part of the things. And, uh, you know, uh, a couple of questions we want to know is how many miles a day are you doing with Blackjack the dog? Because when we we had an interview with uh, Connor Kaloya, he said that your dog has probably never walked more than it has currently. (laughs) My dog, uh, he's a trooper. He's a little bit over 12. Um, he's a, a black lab, but we think he's got some great Dane in him. I would say that we're putting in close to six to seven miles a, a day. Um, so, uh, he's, he's ready for this quarantine to be over because he, <laughs> he, he's ready. He's ready to have his life back. And, and, uh, he looks at me and he's like, man, we got to go out again. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so I would say it's probably six to seven miles a day. Um, and you know, his hips, his back hips are starting to, uh, you know, not do so well. So uh, some of the walks we have to go on take a little bit longer than I'd like them to. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's been uh, it's been kind of fun uh, hanging out with with him. And uh, who who booked the, the tea time first, you or, or Neil for Friday? <laughs> we have a time, Neil. I'm going to let the courses work the kinks out. So we're not there on that day. They need at least a couple of days. I can, I can tell you this. Um, we probably won't get out Friday, but we might be out the week after. <laughs> Cause we were really worried that, you know, no golf was probably as tough on you as, as no soccer right now. 100%. The, the fact that, that, uh, that we can't get out, um, on, a on a Monday, uh, so today's, uh, Monday, right? Um, <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> It's an. It would have been an off day after our fourth win, fifth win. I, I'm trying to figure that one out, but uh, yeah. It, well, it, I, I've heard that somebody is, conceded uh, yet this year. That's I, I, I've heard point. that somebody um, who won't go uh, mentioned might have been doing some practice on some turf in a certain area of uh, downtown Madison. <laughs> With their wedge game, we've been informed. Their their yeah. wedge game may have improved yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we'll the, see. The other thing that you know we we've been turning to Neil in in the 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 quarantine is what his musical picks are. So what have you been have you been listening to any new music or anything interesting in in this kind of break? So I've been mixing it up actually. Uh, um, you know, on my walks with blackjack. So. Uh, on, uh, I'm still old school, so I still have Pandora cause I haven't figured out all the other ones, but, uh, <laughs> it's been a mix of, uh, eighties hip hop, uh, the run DMC channel, uh, eighties rock. Uh, it's been a lot of, uh, which I'm not, I never really was growing up, but the eighties rock I've noticed has a lot of like quiet riot, uh, uh, Def Leppard, uh, Motley Crue, um, those are the kind of songs. So I actually did go last week uh, in honor of the passing. I did go a couple days of w- listening to the Bill Withers channel. Yeah. Uh, and I tell you, I you don't realize how many great songs yeah. he either wrote or sang. But uh, I went I went with Bill Withers uh, radio as well. So those are the three. Uh, Dan, Dan, before we get to Neil, what what what? What's your uh, recommendation? Because you're Mr. New Music as well. 
Uh, well, actually, I'm going to go with a with a throwback. Um, I watched the uh, documentary about other music, which was a record store, um, East Village, NoHo in Manhattan. Um, that was kind of an uh, the antidote to Tower Records. They literally opened the place across the street from Tower Records in like 2000 or no, like 1996, 1995, somewhere in there. Recently closed. Um, but in the documentary, they they highlighted some of the artists that they kind of really liked. And they talked about this guy, Jackson Frank, who put out one full-length folk music album in 1964, recorded in six hours in London with Paul Simon as the producer. Uh, it's pretty much flawless. I've listened to it like three times. It's an incredible folk album. And then the guy just had the one of the most horrible sad lives pretty much after that recorded a few other demos um but never another album uh, was homeless i mean if you read his wikipedia page it just like gets worse and worse um but he did put out one just perfect uh folk album which the one song you people may recognize it's been covered by a lot of people including like counting crows and uh some some pretty famous musicians who i think look to him as a very uh, big influence. So that would, so Jackson C. Frank is my recommendation for the week. What about you, Neil? What are we going with? What's, what's the, the album picks in the, uh, the dive bar, uh, existence in your apartment? I mean, first, first off, if your album's produced by Paul Simon, I mean, it's gotta be great. So the guy was flying from the start. So did he have Paul Simon do any of his other albums? No, he never, literally never was never able to record another album. Interesting. I'll have to look into him. Mental health and very, very, it's a sad story. I'll have to look into him. Um, um, Yeah, like uh, as Dee mentioned, we had uh, another musical icon pass recently. So um, John Prine's been been playing probably almost every day, um, all the way from the self-titled to to the here and now. I've also been dipping into a lot of uh, old old concerts that are posted on YouTube. Um, You can find some some pretty cool stuff on there. And, and John Prine's a, a pretty good storyteller. So you'll hear uh, some interesting stuff come out of his mouth. Um, and then he actually toured with Sturgill uh, a lot in the, in the recent years. So they had some, a cool rapport and Sturgill of course is blowing up on Instagram at this point. So look him <laughs> up, buy some merch. I'm not going to mention what he does, but um, yeah. And then uh, kind of also been listening to Catfish and the Bottle Men. Uh, it's an English band. Um, they haven't put anything out. 2019, they put an album out, but they're uh, kind of alternative, punky English band, kind of sound like Oasis, a little more wine to them. Uh, biked around Monona today, listened to the album called The Balcony. Um, phenomenal listen. If you want to go and take that one, have a listen. And then uh, some modern stuff. Um, John Mayer and Leon Bridges recently put out a, a, a track it's pretty good um kind of uh an homage to quarantine so so here's here's a shocker by the way i'm gonna be the only person listening to like brand new music i have uh, gotten into the fiona apple album uh and i have to say i really enjoy it i i think it's it's uh tremendous and it makes me feel better about paisley interrupting the podcast because her dogs make several appearances on the album uh, in various ways. So I, I really like the new Fiona Apple. That's, that's me. 
And I would recommend going back to just a couple months ago, the New Yorker did a whole profile on Fiona Apple. If you're, if you get really into the album, I would, I would recommend reading, reading the article. It's a very interesting look at, at her. Dan, I learned a lot. Dan, are you going to listen or watch a fish concert today? (laughs) Um, the, The answer to that is no asterisk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and the asterisk is that tonight, <laughs> tonight is um trey anastasio guitar player of fish had a okay. had a solo project last year called ghosts of the forests he wrote an entire album about his best friend who uh passed away from cancer um and then he basically created put together another band and went out on tour for like 13 nights um and they are showing the last night of that tour tonight, I think in honor of 420. Um, and so, yeah, so I will be watching that tonight. So that's not technically a fish concert, but then tomorrow night is a fish concert. <laughs> Dan and I actually got together and watched a Phil and Friends show from the, so our Grateful Dead and, and uh, Fish interests came together merged and uh, i'm continuing down the europe 72 tour we're going to the ryan hall which audio quality not great on that tape well uh we've kept kept uh you know both of you you guys have to go and and cook dinner so want to thank you both and we'll say uh thanks again for joining us i uh, thought it was a, a an interesting interview with both of you got some insights that we might not have gotten in the the hub and bub uh, of the the season grind so appreciate that and We say until next time, forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. A, a Daryl Shore podcast when it's supposed to go live. You never on know. Speak, we made speakers it. on. <laughs>